Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to Starseed Radio Academy, empowering Starseed to better serve the planet. Welcome to Starseed Radio Academy. It's Tuesday, April 26th, 2022, and I'm your host, Arielle Taylor, with my co-hosts for the evening, Lavendar and Anastasia. We'll be away for the Starseed Quest for the next two Tuesdays, so our next show after tonight will be May 17th, which is Pleiadian Lineup. And um, after our May Quest, the next Starseed Quest will be August 12th through the 15th. Our special guest this evening is Dr. Joanna Kuyava, who is the author of The Other Goddess, Mary Magdalene and the Goddesses of Eros and Secret Knowledge. She is a scholar and spiritual detective. She received her BA and MA from the Pontifical Institute for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto, Canada, and her PhD from Monash University in Melbourne, Australia. As an active academic for over 20 years, she uses her scholarly training to investigate topics other academics often pass over, such as, can spirituality and sexuality be experienced as one? Who was the real Mary Magdalene? Is there a lineage of goddesses now resurfacing in our collective experience of spirituality? Apart from her writings for academic publications on spiritual travel, Joanna has also had her short stories and essays published through various media and in many prestigious anthologies, including Best Australian Stories, the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, and She Rises. She is on the editorial board of the International Journal of Goddess Studies, And you can find her new book, The Other Goddess, on Amazon, or you can visit her website, which is uh, www.joanna, J-O-A-N-N-A, Kuyava, K-U-J-A-W-A.com. At the top of the show, it's Anastasia's Starseed News, bringing topics of interest to starseeds not heard in the mainstream. And we'd like to thank Kathy for hosting the switchboard tonight for those who may have a question or comment for our guest. Our main website is starseedhotline.com. The Stage 1 Starseed confirmations are based on Lavendar's discovery of star markings and your natal astrological chart. And the Stage 2 session is a one-on-one Zoom session available with Anastasia, Emerald, Miara, Riley, or myself. Lavendar has now retired from doing sessions so she can finish her book and continue writing for Starseeds. And remember, if you have a birthday coming up, you're going to get a window of 10 hours of power. You can find out exactly when that happens by requesting your solar return timing. And that usually takes less than a week to deliver. So first up, I would like to introduce Anastasia with her fascinating Starseed News. Let me get your mic open, baby. Okay. Hi, Ariel. Good evening, everybody. Great to be with you. A beautiful spring day. The flowers are starting to bloom. It's lovely. Well, I want to share a story with you tonight about a young person. This is a 13-year-old boy 
uh, in Minneapolis that is preparing to graduate from the University of Minnesota. This boy, whose name is Elliot, is a fourth-year physics major, 13 years old. He has a math minor at the University of Minnesota's College of Science and Engineering, 13 years old. <laughs> His mother said he started reading and doing math by the time he was three years old. Following a few years of homeschooling and a high school curriculum that took him only two years to finish, he began taking college classes when he was nine years old. Holy. His mother says people who hear his story say he doesn't get to be a kid or that he grew up too fast. Well, let me tell you, he's still very much a kid. And the only difference is that he goes to school in a different building. Well, this boy has already been accepted into the University of Minnesota's physics Ph.D. program. He's going for a Ph.D. in physics. He's 13 years old. When he completes the program, which takes about five to six years for most people, who knows how long, how long it's going to take this boy, he hopes to someday return and become a professor so he can share his passion with others. He said, I have an incredible passion for physics. I feel like I would love to be able to spread some of this joy for physics and enthusiasm for it around to as many people as I can. Wow. This boy was interviewed on a, on a video, along with his mathematic uh, calculations, his little formulas. Wow. He was all already talking about working with the Fermi Lab and uh, neutrinos and stuff like that. 13 years old. Awesome. Absolutely awesome. And he's a nice boy, too. Wow. Well, it's about woman power tonight. I have a few stories to share with all of you about us ladies. And here is a, <laughs> what a hoot. A woman has opened an honest auto shop. She fixes cars, and she also has an on-site nail salon. Well, here's the story. She calls it the Girls Auto Clinic, and she's changing the conversation about women and their vehicles. This is a one-stop shop where customers can get their cars fixed, receive a quality education on what it takes to keep a car up, and get a manicure while they wait. Now, she used to call herself an auto airhead. She said she always was scared to take her car to an auto mechanic because she knew she'd get taken advantage of. You know, she said, I waited till the last minute to do any maintenance on my car. Anytime a dashboard light would come on, I'd freak out. I always felt like I needed to get a man to help me when it came to my car. Well, it bothered her so much. And by the way, up until she was a well adult, I mean, you know, it's always bothered her. And she was making six figures as an engineer with DuPont before she finally decided to go back to school to learn how to fix cars. Wow. <laughs> so in 2017, she opened the Girls Auto Clinic, which is just outside of Philadelphia. It's a mostly female-run auto shop. That's just mostly female, not all female. Uh, it's, a, it's a car shop that has an on-site salon for customers to get their nails done while they wait and other cool girl stuff. She said, a Girls Auto Clinic is committed to creating a unique, comfortable, and confident automotive repair experience for women. She said, uh, we want to help women with dependable, honest, and educational auto repair. We have women mechanics, and we add on top of all that manis and petties while you wait at the beauty bar. She said she got her idea for a nail salon in her business by uh, remembering that when she used to get her oil changes, uh, when she took her lunch breaks, when she worked as an engineer, she and her girlfriends would go out for lunch, she said they'd go to a specific Jiffy Lube 
because it had a nail salon next to it. And she said, we get our nails done and our, our oil changed, right? So we loved it. And I thought, you know, this would be great in my business. If women go out of their way to get their nails done. They won't go out of their way to get their oil changed. So I thought, this is great. So she put a nail salon in her car clinic. <laughs> now, they have classes every month to teach women how to check and maintain their vehicles from oil to brakes and tires and all that other stuff. She said the shop has been very successful. She wants to expand her business and start franchising so she can reach out and get more women. She said it's just a matter of time. My goal, my intention is to reach every single woman driver. Well, I shared that with you, number one, because it's just it's quite an amazing story. You change your career, do what you want, do what you're drawn to do. Obviously, this is something she loves. And um, women are doing what they want to do these days. I think that's really cool. I have another woman's story for you here in a minute. Um, uh, this is a, boy, I wish you could see the pictures, guys. There was an orphan mountain lion uh, that was spotted by hikers in San Mateo that was rescued. Um, what happened was the, uh, what a picture. The the cub was uh, spotted by hikers, and they went on their way. Then they reported it, and it took them five days to find the cub. A uh, uh, rescue team went out to try to find the animal. They did find it. It's a four-month-old mountain lion. It was retrieved by the California Department of Fish, Wild, uh, Fish and Wildlife, and they took it to the Oakland Zoo, uh, to a veterinary hospital. And according to the zoo, uh, the cat was in really bad shape. She weighed eight pounds. Uh, they said a healthy cat at that age should weigh about 30 pounds. She was really dehydrated, starving, covered in fleas and ticks. She was in bad oh. shape. Well, since arriving at the zoo, the cub has been receiving round-the-clock care, bottle feeding several times a day, IV fluids and blood tests, and uh, she got a blood transfusion from a resident mountain lion. Isn't that something? Hmm. And they said, now she's really recovering. Well, now she's still underweight and fragile, but they're really positive that she's going to recover. They don't know what happened to the mother. Uh, they don't know how she happened to be orphaned. The cool part was was that she was saved. If you saw a picture of it, just melt your heart. Um, they think the cat's going to make it, and I, I think we've talked about this before, maybe not, but mountain lions are coming back in the mountains of California by intention. You know, we're trying to restore habitats in certain places of this country, and uh, these uh, mountain lions are very important to the habitat. And something happened to this uh, kitten's mother, and some people saved her. And I think that's a beautiful story. If you get a chance to look up the picture of the cub, you might want to do it. It's a beautiful cat. Well, uh, boy, this sounds cool. Um, I know a lot of starseeds are creative, artistic. I've talked to a number of you that have wonderful gifts in this area. Some, some of you are just wonderful artists. And it's hard to make in, in the United States a living being creative or artistic. We all know that. We talk about that. We're all searching our, uh, to fulfill our heart's desire and do our work. Well, the Irish have come up with a solution, or at least a wonderful help. Ir artists in Ireland are being invited to apply for a $300 a week income just given to them. It's just been launched to support struggling artists and to boost the country's cultural sector. That would be so cool if they do it here. The income is going to be available for up to 2,000 artists and last three years. Now, the Irish Prime Minister said, Ireland's art and culture in all its distinctiveness and its variety is the wellspring of our identity. 
The basic income for the arts program is a unique opportunity to support all of the artists and creatives and ensure that the arts thrive well into the future. Well, how amazing and progressive and wonderful. A new world that we want to be in has to include art and creative types. I mean, yeah. geez, you know, it's about the pursuit of beauty and the kind of world we want to be in. So there's a government going to pay these people to do their thing because here's a society that values creativity. I think that's a good sign. Well, yeah. um, David Attenborough, I don't know if you, if some of you might be familiar with him. He's famous um, for all of his BBC uh, co- uh, programs that he's narrated. They tell us he's brought the natural world into millions of houses, lots and lots of television programs. He's grown to be one of the most influential champions of nature on the planet. Well, this week, Sir David Attenborough has been recognized by the United Nations, and they awarded him the title Champion of the Earth. That's quite a title, Champion of the Earth. Accepting the award, Sir David said that conservation success stories should give all of us hope that change is possible. He said, 50 years ago, whales were on the very edge of extinction worldwide. Then people got together, and now there are more whales in the sea than any living human being has ever seen. We know what the problems are, and we know how to solve them. All we have lacked thus far is unified action. Wow. I mean, really, as I study the news for for tonight's program, I am finding all kinds of wonderful news pieces about the advancements in environment and in science, in uh, environmentally friendly science. I mean, we really are making progress in big ways behind the scenes. And I'm glad that this man got this award. I mean, I was just talking with somebody about him the other day who was watching a program on, on whales, actually. And his uh, wonderful voice, it's just been, you know, around forever. He's quite elderly now. But anyway, I thought that was nice that he got recognized. And he really has done a lot at bringing wildlife awareness to to people on the planet. Well, in Quebec, the Canadian province of Quebec has become the first jurisdiction in the world to ban the exploration and production of oil and gas. Think about that. Public financing for fossil fuel projects has also been outlawed as part of a bill that was passed just today. This follows decades of campaigning by environmental groups. The climate change project manager said this is a historic moment. Quebec is sending a strong message to the international community that, yes, it is possible to give up fossil fuel reserves for the sake of future generations. That's a big first. Yeah. And probably a sign of things to come. Well, here's a story for you. A teenage treasure hunter that combs river bottoms with a heavy-duty magnet looking for treasure pulled up a safe containing thousands of dollars, and he got very famous. Everybody loves him now because he returned the money to its rightful owner. Here's the story. The young guy was scouring the river with his dad when he made this incredible discovery just a couple weeks ago. They followed a trail of clues to track down the cash's owner, a businessman whose safe was stolen over 22 years ago. Uh, The boy said, I mean, it was amazing, really. We pulled the safe out, and it had all that money in it. 
The father and son were just gobsmacked when among the mud and slime inside the small safe was a pouch containing around $2,000. Also inside were a certificate, expired bank cards that gave the fisherman, as he called himself, enough information to track down the owner. He did. After contacting the man to explain what he found, uh, the father and son visited the person at their business to give back the stolen property. The man said, I was just amazed these guys had been able to track me down. They're really nice and good people in this world. They could have kept the money. They could have said that they tried to get a hold of me. So the man offered the teenager a job. He told the boy, if you ever want work experience when you leave school, my offer is open. And he gave the young man a reward. They didn't say how much. He said they wanted to return the content and the goods to the rightful owners. And I think that says a lot about humanity to go to all that trouble. There's a big lesson there. It teaches, oh, he's talking about the money he gave him as to the reward and the offer for a job. He said, my lesson is it teaches him that doing good and being honest and giving back is actually far more rewarding than taking. Now, mm-hmm. although this boy started magnet fishing three years ago looking for treasure, and we don't know what else he found, but his hobby now also highlights river pollution and the harm that can have on wildlife. There again, he's gone from a hobby into a, a, an outward interest to help others. He regularly records his findings on his popular YouTube channel. Uh, what a kid. That's great. I mean, some of these, you know, these youth are starseed. They're really coming up to make a difference. Yeah. And here was another woman's story. Uh, a newsroom comprised exclusively of women uh, was, has been established in Somalia to provide a female perspective on the country. And Somalia ranks among the world's lowest for gender equality. This is shocking there. The news group is aimed at society at, at society at large. And the female journalist that led it says, women are expected to babble all they like in the kitchen, but to keep their mouths shut in public. And then she added, never before have Somali female journalists been given the freedom, the opportunity, and the power to stand before the public and challenge the status quo. That's a big deal. Yeah. And in Indonesia... Indonesia has outlawed forced marriage. You said, what? Forced marriage? What? What? That can't still be going on in this world, but it is. Advocates for justice in Indonesia rejoiced and celebrated this week as forced marriage and sexual harassment were made illegal in Indonesia. In addition, that nation's lawmakers also passed legislation that criminalizes and punishes nine other forms of female exploitation. They've crossed an important threshold into the 21st century after many generations of the medieval oppression of women in Indonesia. Wow. We don't live in Indonesia. We can't imagine that. For that country, that is huge. Huge. Well, on the environmental side, new hydrogen fuel cells use cheap iron instead of costly platinum for green vehicles. Researchers have developed this hydrogen fuel cell that uses iron instead of rare and costly platinum, which is going to enable more use of this technology. Hydrogen fuel cells convert hydrogen to electricity with water vapor. Water vapor is the only byproduct. 
making them an attractive green alternative for portable power, especially for cars. However, this widespread use has been hampered by the cost of one of the primary components, which is platinum, which is expensive and scarce. Well, now a European team led by the Imperial College in London has created a catalyst using only iron, carbon, and nitrogen, materials that are cheap and very easily available, and they've shown that it can be used to operate a fuel cell at high power, such as needed by vehicles, and very low cost. So that just brings uh, electric vehicles even closer to mass market. Important discovery. Great. And there is a new record for the world's oldest dog living. It's been officially confirmed in Florida. The doggie was born on 9th of January 2001. I want to introduce you to the 21-year-old Chihuahua called Toby Keith. Toby Keith's <laughs> owner has been with him for much of his life since she adopted him from a shelter. She said, I was a volunteer at a rescue shelter. And one of the employees told me about an elderly couple trying to surrender a puppy because they could not take care of him any longer. Now, the woman told this to the Guinness World Records. She said, I met with the elderly couple and I was introduced to a tiny tan chihuahua. They had named him Peanut Butter. I later changed his name to Toby Keith. Well, Toby Keith, this 21-year-old chihuahua, has a very cozy and close relationship with her 28-year-old umbrella cockatoo called Coco, and he often walks around with the bird. Otherwise, he enjoys eating slices of turkey, going on little walks, and lying next to the desk when she works from home. Now, to celebrate being named the world's oldest dog, on the day Guinness confirmed the news, Toby Keith got a bath, he had his nails trimmed down, and he went on a car ride, which is, above all else, his favorite treat. Uh-huh. A 21-year-old 21, 21 chihuahua. There, that's something. And a miracle dog survived 12 days trapped down a badger set after her owner refused to give up hope and camped out in the woods waiting for the dog's safe return. 46-year-old woman was devastated when her border carrier, Frida, became trapped underground after darting down a badger hole during a walk. The woman carried out an eight-day vigil by setting up camp at a country park in England in the vague hope the dog would come out. She even attempted to coax her dog out by cooking bacon and blowing the aroma down the hole using a leaf blower. Oh, God. Really good. Incredibly... Twelve days later, the six-year-old dog reemerged and was found by three students at a roadside. She was rushed to a veterinary hospital for urgent treatment. She was dehydrated, malnourished, had pressure sores, all cut up and scraped up. She's now home with her owners and their other terrier called Bert after she recovered. The woman said, here's the woman's story, I camped out for eight days in the hope that Frida would somehow miraculously come out of that hole. I did have a lot of help. Some people brought specialist listening devices and cameras to try to locate her, but there wasn't a trace. On day eight, I just said to myself, I have to give up and begin to grieve. I went back home, although I did leave her a blanket 
and a bowl behind in the park just in case. Then, on day 12, I was told that three students had found Frida collapsed at the side of a nearby road. Of course, I feared the worst. But when I was told she was alive, it felt like a miracle, and I ran out of the house to get her. She was very weak and bedraggled, but she was alive. So we rushed her to the clinic where my husband, Brian, her name, her husband, where my husband is based. Her husband's a vet. She said everybody was supportive. By the time they got there, everybody was ready. They put the dog on a heated bed, gave it IVs, fixed her wounds. Uh, um, she said, now I realize how important it is for a vet to provide 24-7 emergency service because it can make a difference. Anyway, her husband, the vet, said, I've been a vet for 30 years, but this story is one of the most incredible I've ever known. She was hospitalized for two days, and now she's home, reunited with her brother, Bert, and the rest of the family, and everybody's delighted. Isn't that something? Um, I love Down it. in that <laughs> badger hole, and but I, I mean, the woman stayed camped out for eight days. That's love. It is. And in India, a brave woman may have saved hundreds of lives. How did she do it? Well, she raped her red, her red sari to put a stop to an oncoming train after she spo- spotted broken tracks further down the line. The woman was uh, crossing the track, and she was praised, by the way, considered to be a hero in India. She said, I was on my way back uh, for routine work. I crossed the land, and I stumbled over a broken track. I realized this could result in a massive tragedy. Well, it hurt a lot. That red stands for danger. So I used my sari to tie it around the track to stop or prevent any untoward incident, which luckily my action worked because the driver applied his brakes. Well, the driver offered her 100 rupees, but she turned it down. And then she said, well, he insisted that I keep the money. So I did. <laughs> I'm sure. I'm sure in India, hundred rupees is, yeah, really necessary. You see the photograph of the woman, and she's. Let's just put it this way: she's not overweight. And anyway, a wonderful story, a wonderful I mean, coincidence, shall we say? She trips over the track, and she's a quick thinker. Here's the train. She waves the flag. The driver stops. A couple hundred people were saved. It's wonderful. All right, the Dalai Lama said, love and compassion are necessities, not luxuries. Without them, humanity cannot survive. And so, you know, when we hear people talk, we hear people criticize, we hear people complain, we hear people blame, let's keep all that in mind. Without love and compassion, humanity cannot survive. And so, from my heart to each one of you, have a beautiful couple of weeks. Guess we'll see it later in May. I'll miss you. I know you'll have a wonderful time. But anyway, in the meantime, much love to each one of you, and thank you, Ariel. Good night. Thank you so much, Anastasia. Great stories tonight. <laughs> I love them. So yeah, we'll be back on the 17th of May for our next show. Just so you know. Thank you. So see you then. until then. Okay. So now I am going to, excuse me, I'm going to get Lavendar's mic open and our special guest, Joanna, get your mic open. 
Okay, Joanna, are you there? Yes, I am. Okay, excellent. Lavendar, are you ready to go? I'm ready. Okay, take it away. Okay, so, <clears throat> Joanna, I'm so so happy that we're talking at this time. Your book arrived just in time for me to to have time to read most of it. I'm thrilled that you have taken on the task of tracking down all the different aspects of the goddess. So welcome, my friend. And thank you, Lavender. I'm delighted to be here. And may I just say that I loved Anastasia's news. We need more news like that everywhere. Yes, yes. We we really love having her come on and, and give us some some good good news before uh, our guest each time. So I want to talk about um, the reason that you wrote this book. What what was it that made you decide to go in this direction? What was the trigger that said to you, "Oh, I have got to write this story"? Well, Lavender, I was thinking about it, and I think it happened really early in my life because I was born in 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 communist Poland, but everybody, strangely enough, was also a very devout Catholic. But this kind of Catholicism in Poland was very, very medieval, very fundamentalist. However, I used to go to church very often, and I saw these beautiful images of uh, uh, Virgin Mary, which, you know, it was good because I was exposed to uh, the divine feminine right from the beginning. But I also noticed that, uh, uh, you know, a little bit in the uh, further away in the naves of the church, there were, there were images of another goddess or a woman, and that was clearly very close to, to Jesus, and her name was Mary Magdalene. However, she was portrayed in a completely different way, almost uh, revealed, but at the same time uh, rejected. So when I grew up, I started to study Mary Magdalene and look into the other side of the divine feminine, you know, to fully reclaim all the qualities of the divine feminine. So it started really early on uh, in my childhood, actually. <laughs> well, so and, if you would tell us more about how you discovered how the sexuality part of the spiritual experience after you were researching and finding out all this information, please tell us the the way that you discovered all of this about the sexual tantra and the spiritual experience. So perhaps before I even move on to this, I maybe should explain that after, you know, this first realization in, in when I was a little girl, I started to explore uh, ancient Greek goddesses, which, you know, everybody knows about them, such as Aphrodite, for example, which is the goddess of love and beauty. And I started to notice that she, like Mary Magdalene as well, was very famous but completely disempowered. Because as we read mythology, uh, for example, Aphrodite was at the beginning a very powerful goddess. And what happened later on, she fell in love by trickery with a man. And once she got into a relationship with a man, she completely lost her power. So it's very strange because she's this powerful goddess, but when in a relationship, she lost her power. And I looked in other uh, Greek goddesses such as Circe for example, and she is often associated with magic and so on. And Silke was a little bit different than Aphrodite because she used magic to get what she wants. So basically in my book, The Other Goddess, I call it the lower magic, which means you play with the material elements to, to get what you want. 
And I reached the conclusion that perhaps the, she also comes as this kind of femme fatale, right? So she's very attractive, seductress, and manipulative. So I, I, I thought, so that's very interesting, but I think that in the past, women, these women represent probably different aspects of ourselves. Uh, and the goddesses uh, represent different aspects of ourselves. And I thought that perhaps in the past women felt that they have to use magic or manipulation to basically survive in, in, in the world of men. But uh, um, my biggest discovery, so that, that wasn't very inspiring really, it was just kind of history, how women lose their power, especially when they are in a relationship and how sometimes perhaps have to use uh, uh, manipulation or seduction to survive in the world. But it was not very inspiring. So I started, when I grew up, I started to look into esoteric Hinduism and Tantra. And there I discovered that spirituality and sexuality are actually considered as one and the same thing. So I started to look into the sources of Tantra, because very often in modern times, you know, there are so many Tantric teachers, and especially in the West, uh, we are most uh, uh, um, accustomed to the Neo-Tantra, which is actually quite quite new take on Tantra. So I decided to look into the sources of Tantric teachings about spirituality and sexuality, and I discovered that the uh, actually originator of this tradition was a woman, and her name was Arda Triyambaka. So it's quite interesting that a woman started a tradition that equates sexuality with spirituality. And Arda Triyambaka, in mythological kind of uh, stories, she was the daughter of the first three uh, original sages that descended on, on our planet. So it's quite an interesting story. If someone, you know, if you're interested in, in also ancient aliens and this kind of stories, you know, that can have different connotations. And she was the daughter of one of the sages and started the tradition of um, uh, teaching people how uh, sexual experience can also expand our consciousness so we, we can become one with the divine. And this tradition for, for millennia was carried uh, through, uh, from one woman to another, woman, uh, yogini, or they are also called dakinis, and they were also known for, uh, especially the Dakinis, were known for having all kinds of powers and also the ability, apparently, to move from a material to immaterial existence so they could move from between spirit and matter very easily. And she started the Tantric tradition. So would you like me to elaborate on that? Well, yes, and also uh, I, I was wanting to have you go into a little detail about the lineage of other ancient goddesses that Mary Magdalene was a part of. Okay. So this uh, actually took me in a little bit different direction. I have to fast forward a few years. I went to Jerusalem with two men who uh, believed that they discovered the tomb and, and house of Jesus. So we went to Jerusalem, and I was there to, to record their discoveries and write a book about it. And, and, and there, you know, they took me to a church of Mary Magdalene on the Mount of Olives, which was an Eastern Orthodox church. And I noticed a completely different depiction of Mary Magdalene. In this church, she stands there with her hand extended, and she has an egg in her hand. 
And the traditional medieval explanation of the story is that after uh, the event of resurrection, she went to Rome to meet Emperor Tiberius, and she told him that, you know, resurrection and life after death is possible, and he said he doesn't believe it, and she said, if it is true, the egg in my hand turns red. So this is the medieval explanation of that story. But I thought it was, yeah, well, I thought it was very medieval and that probably there are better explanations for the story. However, in this painting, I noticed that she's portrayed as a wise and powerful woman, you know, who was not afraid to face an emperor. And because I studied other goddesses in mythology, I noticed many similarities between this portrayal of Mary Magdalene and other ancient goddesses, including with the Sumerian goddess, which is like, nearly 6,000 years old now, if not older, Ninma. And Ninna, who is, uh, some people believe that she's one of the um, original uh, gods, or Anunnaki, you know, the Sumerian gods, she's portrayed exactly in the same way. So basically, except that she's not standing, she's sitting on a throne next to the tree of knowledge and the tree of life, and she offers, she has this kind of circular object in her hand, which, you know, some people say it's a fruit, you know, but in the story of Mary Magdalene, it's supposed to be an egg, fruit of uh, life and, and, and knowledge. And she offers it to humanity. And behind her, there is a, uh, uh, there is a painting of a, uh, of a serpent, which is supposed to represent, and we don't know what it's supposed to represent, but usually we mean uh, serpent represents wisdom in, in mythology, or I la later learned in Tantra, it represents uh, the awakened energy, Kundalini energy, and some people also speculate it could also represent the way it is portrayed uh, a DNA, DNA helix. So I thought this is quite interesting that this benevolent goddess creatrix from 6,000 years ago, she is portrayed in a similar way as, as Mary Magdalene, as the giver of knowledge. So I looked into other goddesses and I found that, you know, about 1,000 years later, there was another goddess in the same area of Sumer and Assyria, which is present-day uh, Iran and Iraq, goddess Inanna. And she also is represented in a very similar way, the way that Mary Magdalene is represented. Very often also with a, with a reed in her hands, which suggests, it's very interesting, I think, that, that she is in control of a portal between death and life and between different dimensions. And we have to remember that Mary Magdalene was the first, even in the canonical Gospels, in the Bible she's portrayed as the first person who saw the resurrected Jesus. So she is somehow, even in the, uh, in the Bible, portrayed as somehow connected to this event between life and death and between different dimensions. And if I can elaborate a little bit more on this, if you read this uh, fragment about Mary Magdalene in the original Bible, which was written in Greek, uh, that it is translated when she sees uh, the teacher or Jesus after resurrection, and she comes up to him and she says, Rabini, which means my beloved teacher, he says, memo up to in Greek, which means do not hold on to me because I haven't ascended yet. Isn't that interesting? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I, I really ascended. Yeah, I, I also think that 
that Mary Magdalene had alchemy running through her soul. Uh, after I read a, a chapter in your book, especially about her ties to Alexander in Egypt, I realized that she had been trained and her bloodline had been trained in order to to be Jesus's partner. Yes, absolutely. And there are many stories, you know, in mythology and also, you know, in oral traditions and, and in different visions. So, for example, if I can say that lots of, um, uh, there are many sources that mention that uh, Mary Magdalene was of mixed lineage. So it means that her mother was Jewish, but her father was Egyptian, and actually he belonged to uh, some esoteric tradition in Egypt connected to, uh, to the mysteries of alchemy. And that's why, in some ways, she could have been considered by traditional uh, members of society as a sinner, if you know what I mean, because she was not of pure lineage, according to this tradition. So um, uh, according to this tradition, she was sent to Egypt and she, she had a training in the temple, uh, in training in the alchemy. But for me, the most uh, important part actually comes after the resurrection because uh, we know that all the disciples were prosecuted and persecuted after the resurrection. And I have a theory based on my research that uh, after this event, she went to Egypt, to Alexandria. And the ancient city of Alexandria was uh, the center of all culture. This is like New York, Paris, London, and Tokyo all together. And there was there also the famous library of Alexandria, which was basically a depository of all knowledge in the world at that time. So I, according to my research, there was a group of philosophers called Therapete who lived in Alexandria at the time who had contact with the esoteric groups in, in the Holy Land that admitted women to, to their circle, which is very unusual in those times, right? Because women were not allowed to do anything pretty much, <laughs> right? So, but they allowed women to their circles and women philosophers and that they had strong connections with one particular group called the Essenes, to which apparently Jesus and Mary Magdalene were connected as well. So I looked deeper into this, and I decided to ask a question, okay, if, let's say, this is a possibility that she went to Alexandria because she had to go somewhere, just to be safe. So was there a woman in the first century, Alexa first century Alexandria that fits in the description of Mary Magdalene? And... After long research, I found this woman who was called either Mary the Jewess or Mary the Prophetess or Mary the Alchemist. It's one and the same woman. She lived in the first century Alexandria. And we know about her because a famous alchemist from the third century, 200 years later, called Zosimus, and we have many good sources about him, who originally came from Akmin, which is a city in, in, in Egypt, and it's significant uh, for, I'll mention it for a reason. Uh, he says that uh, one of the most famous spiritual alchemists uh, that we know of was this woman from, uh, um, originally from the Holy Land, um, uh, Mary the Alchemist or Mary the Prophetess. And she also had her own school apparently in Alexandria and she could teach the spiritual alchemy when other people, the regular Egyptians, could not do this because they were forbidden to do this by their own priests. 
And if you don't mind, I'll just very brief. Oh, and I mentioned Acmin. Why Acmin? And what is interesting about the fact that this um, alchemist, the Simus, was from Acmin, was that the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, which was discovered in the 19th century, was discovered in Acmin as well, where this alchemist lived. So I think there's a nice connection there. So just to make a short description between what is an alchemy and spiritual alchemy. So the physical alchemy is basically about converting base metals into gold. But Mary the prophetess was not interested in it. She was interested in, a, in some form of alchemy that helps us to, uh, to evolve spiritually in a spiritual alchemy. So, so that's my theory about Mary Magdalene. Okay. You know, our our group took a a trip to France in 2012, and we had many experiences over there. And one of the things that came to us was that Mary Magdalene had been to France and that Mm. she had been to a a grotto. So when I read in your book about Mary Magdalene being in the grotto at France, I said, oh, goodness, I can't wait to ask you about this. So would you tell us what you know about about her going to France and living in the grotto. Yes, with great pleasure. And I must say, I must say that originally I was very skeptical because I thought, yeah, Mary Magdalene went to France, right? But then, because I'm an academic, you know, I had to check my sources. And then I found, you know, a, a, a book written by an, another academic that says that there is a very long tradition like, you know, thousand years old tradition at least of, Mary, of pilgrimages to, you know, in southern France, to the churches of Mary Magdalene. So I started to look into it more seriously. And indeed, I discovered that there are in very, like even in chronicles from the second century, and, and then especially in a medieval legend called the, the Golden Legend, which is a work written by a, a Dominican monk, they mention, they argue that Mary Magdalene indeed went to France after resurrection. But so I started to look how it fits in into also my theory that she went to Alexandria. So I think it does uh, fit in nicely because Mary Magdalene didn't go to France until 14 years after the resurrection. So she had to go somewhere in between. And my theory is she went to Alexandria. And then according to you know this version of events, she went back to France I'm sorry, she went back to the, the Holy Land and uh, she and some other disciples, including uh, Maximus and Lazarus and so on, were, were found out and they were thrown into a boat without any sail and basically asked to leave, uh, asked to leave the country. So I think the intention of the people who were uh, persecuting them was, you know, so that they would die at sea. However, instead of dying at sea, uh, uh, Mary Magdalene and her companions landed in southern France near Marseille. And if you don't mind, maybe I'll mention the story of uh, Sarah, the, the black Sarah yeah, uh, as yeah. well. Because the tradition says that, you know, as the boat was approaching, a, a gypsy, uh, gypsy prophetess or a gypsy queen, a woman of some distinction in, in, in a gypsy tribe in, in this area, had a vision of, of a important woman and her companions coming to the shore. So when she saw the boat and Mary Magdalene and her companions in the boat and they had a difficulty to 
come to the shore, she apparently threw her coat and held them to the shore and bring them to the land. And this is the famous Black Sara, which all the gypsies worship until this day. And they also come to Southern France to celebrate the, what they call the Black Madonna, the Black Sara. So it's associated with the story of Mary Magdalene. And it's very, very interesting because Mary Magdalene in this legend and in this chronicles, she's described as very powerful, very beautiful, and very well-educated woman who started preaching, right? Who started preaching in southern France at the beginning. And then after a while, she retired to this cave in southern France where she spent this time meditating and praying for 30 years. So again, wow. 30 years until she died. And of course, there's a medieval legend, you know, that, you know, angels found her and, and you know, brought her to, to the church and so on. But that she, and very often, especially in Gnostic traditions, Mary Magdalene is um, kind of positioned against Peter in a sense that Peter was more interested in creating a physical church when Mary Magdalene was more interested in creating a spiritual church. That's why she was looking more within, more into the prayer and more into the meditation and retreat, although she occasionally was preaching as well. Right. Can you give us a little insight that you have found about Goddess Sophia? Okay, Goddess Sophia. I love Goddess Sophia. She's one of the Gnostic goddesses. And may I just explain very briefly who are Gnostics, just to make it easier for our listeners? Okay. Yeah. So Gnostics were a group of uh, early Christians who basically um, uh, had slightly different interpretations of Jesus' teachings that when they are portrayed at the moment in the Bible because they thought we have to look within more rather than, you know, building uh, physical structures for physical churches. And one of, and they have very flamboyant stories about gods and goddesses, and also uh, they are probably, uh, some people say, first conspiracy theorists, but also first ufologists too, because they definitely believe that there is a connection between, you know, star beings and, 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 and human beings. So one of the goddesses that they describe is goddess Sophia, and Goddess Sophia, she has a beautiful story, and some people believe that it's a story actually of a human soul, because Goddess Sophia was, or maybe, you know, some form of a star seed, because Goddess Sophia was high in some dimensions, you know, and then she was, by curiosity and compassion, she was moved to see what is in lower dimensions, in more physical world. And then she just decides to move in, to embody in the physical world. And once she does it, she forgets who she is because our density is so much, you know, more physical. So she couldn't hold on to her higher consciousness when she was here. And in some stories, it even says that she was so so desperate that she became a prostitute and she started to sell her body. But I think it's just a metaphor to survive. But I think that's a metaphor for us that, you know, we are selling ourselves out because we forget our divinity. And in this story also, Christ's consciousness notices from higher dimensions that Goddess Sophia is lost at the moment because she forgot her full divinity. And he comes down and takes her back to the higher dimension, so to speak, 
But once she re- recognizes how beautiful and painful at the same time it is to be a human being, part of her is in high dimensions and a part of her stays with us to help us I'm sorry, to help us with our spiritual evolution and to realize our full divinity as humans. Wow. So tell us a little bit about what you wrote about the um, 12 disciples and how they treated Mary Magdalene and how they were actually jealous of her. Yes, that's a very interesting story. I was very surprised when I discovered Gnostic Gospel. And just again... Just to say that, for example, the current Bible was created in around 325 AD uh, when, uh, but, you know, out of four Gospels. But originally there were many Gospels written by many followers of Jesus. And only four of them at the Council of Nicaea were chosen for the current Bible. So it means there are other Gospels. However, once it was decided, you know, that only these four Gospels go to the Bible, the rest was forbidden and rejected. And only in 1945, and even early in the 19th century, uh, Gospel of Mary Magdalene, but the majority of other Gnostic Gospels were discovered in 1945 in Egypt, in, in, in the deserts of Egypt. So that's why we actually know of them. And it took uh, many years, you know, for the scholars to transcribe them because they were in a bad state, right? Like, I mean, they were underground, you know, uh, for for centuries, right, for nearly 2,000 years. And it's quite interesting because in some of these Gospels, like the Gospel of Mary Magdalene and the Gospel of Philip or another Gnostic document, uh, for example, Pistis Sophia, Mary Magdalene is always portrayed as the favorite and favorite disciple of Jesus. For example, in Pistis Sophia, she, that it's a basically a combination of question and answers with, with Jesus, you could say, right? They call them the teacher. There are 42 questions, and Mary Magdalene asks 39 out of 42 questions about spirituality. And in all of these documents, in different forms, the same story is being told, that other disciples, and for some reason Peter was selected as the one that was especially jealous, were jealous of Mary Magdalene and that the attention that Jesus was giving her as his disciple. So in one of them, in one of the Gospels, uh, Peter actually says, you know, teacher, why do you even bother to talk to this woman? And, and the teacher, which is Jesus, responds, she says, because she has a spirit within her. In other Gospels, she uh, spoke of uh, as the woman who knows it all. In the Gospel of um, Mary Magdalene, uh, the disciples are asking, and I think it's Peter this time again, uh, the disciples are asking, um, no, it's actually in Gospel of Philip in this one, uh, teacher, why do you love her more than us? Also. So there's this, in all of these um, teachings, uh, and also in the, in the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, there's the same story that the disciples ask, you know, how do you know all of these things, you know? to Mary Magdalene. Why did he tell you all of his teachings that he didn't tell us? So in a Gnostic tradition, it is explained that Jesus gave three types of teachings. One was for the simple people around the Lake of Galilee, you know, just the regular stories that we know from the Bible. The second one to his disciples. And the third, the highest spiritual level, was for his most favorite disciple, and it was Mary Magdalene. So that's the Gnostic story about Mary Magdalene. 
You know, Joanna, one of the things that I've noticed since 2012 is how many books are being written about Jesus and Mary Magdalene. Mm. It's almost like somebody turned on the light and opened the floodgates, and here it comes. And the only way that I have of tracking this is when I went back to look at some of the things that were happening in 2012, astrologically, bloodlines. Mm -hmm. And I I realized that that those 12 years that Jesus went missing, I know where he was. was, They put him in a scout ship right off the starship Bethlehem, put him on the planet for 12 years, and he impregnated women all over the planet. So when people say Jesus is coming back, he's already here in bloodlines. I am absolutely certain that, you know, that, 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 that this is true. You know, he and she are with us all together because I think that they are this, uh, they represent what I call the sexual alchemy, which is basically the full alchemy between feminine and masculine, right? The archetypes of the feminine and masculine because in this dimension, we all live in, in polarities like masculine, for example, and feminine. And they represent how these polarities can come to oneness for our spiritual evolution. And I think because of what happened in 2012, that, that, that the goddess is rising now all over the planet. Don't you, feel, don't you feel that more women and more goddess frequency and divine feminine is showing themselves more now than ever before? I absolutely believe it. And I call it personally goddess consciousness because I think for the last few thousand years since the dawn of this civilization, but I really do not believe that this is the first civilization, you know, uh, but at the dawn of this civilization, we depended on one form of intelligence. And it is a good form of intelligence, but but not by itself. And this is what I call masculine intelligence, which basically is very logical, you know, cause and effect. And when we spoke about physics before, I think um, Anastasia was talking about this young physicist, you know, it's very kind of Newtonian physics, you know, cause and effect, uh, very logical, very uh, rational, but very, and you know, it's good to create technology and, you know, and stuff like that, but it's not very spiritual and it's not very holistic and it's not very compassionate. It is just very utilitarian in a sense that, you know, we create something that is useful, Right, yeah. but it could also be dangerous. So, I, so it's not necessary. So I call it masculine form of uh, intelligence, and we all have it, right? We all have it. It's not about men and women. We all have it. Both women and men have it. But somewhere on the way, someone and I have actually like a almost conspiratorial theory didn't want us to fully explore this goddess consciousness, which is very holistic which is very much like quantum physics, which sees connection between different things, which is very intuitive. And even in different philosophies, it is, they are mentioned as, for example, in, in Hinduism as buddhi, which is mean, it means immediate knowing, not by rationalizing, but you just know. Or even in Christianity, it's called intellection, right? Like a sudden enlightenment, like you just know. And I call it goddess uh, goddess consciousness and we desperately need it and I think this goddess consciousness is waking up because our civilization is going in the wrong direction of you know 100% of technology, artificial intelligence and so on and I think it is here actually to save us and we really have to make a great effort to explore it within us, within ourselves Right, I noticed that the last chapter of your book is called The Goddess and the Machine. Can you tell us how 
and what we need to discuss today about the matters, especially of our times. Yes, uh, with pleasure, because I actually had, uh, I'm sure you, you all watched the film Matrix, right? Uh, right? I actually liked only the first part, you know, the first part of Matrix. But I had a kind of Matrix-like experience, you know. I was on a tram in Melbourne, Australia, where I used to live um, until three years ago. And, and, you know, I was just going to work and it was busy and everybody was on their mobile phones and so on. And suddenly I felt like I was actually physically pulled out of a frame, like a film frame. And I saw myself going and everybody else through this kind of mechanical programs, like we are all programmed, life. And I saw that we really have to, and uh, that we really have to get out of this programming. And I get this line in my mind that I repeat in the last uh, uh, lines of my book and take a different turn. You know, that we really have to move to a different form of consciousness that is embracing of everything, you know, including sexuality. We didn't have much time to talk about it. So, so this was my experience of actually realizing how uh, we live our life being actually brainwashed and on, on, on our programming, basically. So that's why I say make a turn, make a different turn. We desperately need it individually and collectively nowadays. So you're saying that, that the technology that's come to the planet is really testing our discernment on how to use it properly. Is that what you're saying? I would say so, and I don't want to say that technology is bad, because look, we can have this conversation because of technology. I'm very appreciative of this, right? But what I'm saying is that we cannot develop this kind of technology without developing what I call goddess consciousness, you know, this more intuitive, caring, and deeper and holistic form of intelligence, because we are going to take it to the wrong end. Right. Okay. Yeah. Well, I love this book so much, and I hope that our, our audience uh, buys it because it's really an in-depth book about Mary Magdalene and, and your insight to all of this, which I think is very incredible. At this time, I would like to pass you over to my co-host, Arielle. She has the switchboard, and um, I thank you so much for, for writing this book. Anytime you want to come on our show and announce something, even if for five or ten minutes, you're always welcome to do that, Joanna. Okay? Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So back to you, Ariel. Okay. Wow. I am, I'm, I'm thinking about um, all the things that you've been talking. And in the very beginning, you said, uh, you said something about Atlantis. Did you make reference to it, Atlantean times? And... Uh, and I think what we're doing today is kind of a mirror because technology is advancing without discernment and, and, the, and the spiritual um, wisdom is kind of lagging behind. So how would you um, uh, advise people to help bring that balance back? Because as you said, you know, technology is not a bad thing, but mm. when, when it's used irresponsibly, when it is um, uh, dangerous to, to the health of the people, I mean, that's where we really have to um, help accelerate, as you call it, the goddess consciousness. Uh, 
to to balance that out. So in in present day terms, um, what advice would you give to people to to help connect with and focus on that goddess consciousness? So I would focus on you know my focus is my, uh, spiritual evolution you know for, for collectively and individually. So I would uh, advise uh, everyone. To, to follow what Mary Magdalene did, which is basically we have to go within. I call it an, an inner activism. So we have to be, uh, use lots of discernment, what we are listening to, uh, what we are watching, and you know, also develop uh, uh, what I call the inner witness within us. So we can, uh, we can see when our thoughts and our feelings are going in the very familiar direction, which doesn't take us where we want to go anymore. And I think that for our own collective good, for our civilization, we have to individually try to develop our, what, I, what as you said, I call um, um, our goddess consciousness. So basically we have to develop this consciousness within us. We have to, uh, I use, uh, for example, prayer as a form, uh, prayer and especially meditation as a, f- a form of developing this form of consciousness and reading scriptures that teach us um, different ways, like Gnosis, which means inner knowledge that Gnostics talk, uh, talk about. So I think it's completely up to us, I call it inner activism, to focus on this other part of our intelligence and of our consciousness, which is more holistic and, and more compassionate and there's a great wisdom with it and it is a great call which means you know we are basically pioneers here because as I said for thousands of years we were taught to forget these traditions it's very difficult to find a, a even names of, of women and men who were supporting supportive of this tradition and many scholars and and mainstream media as well, you know, want to um, disown them completely, you know, so they either rejected or hijacked or completely covered up. So in many ways, we have to uh, use our own inner discernment and, and find the pathways to this uh, different form of consciousness, which is more holistic. And, and it's, a, it's a tough call. I'm not saying it is easy. And one of the, thing, one, one of the things that we can do is actually uh, stop listening to certain things, right? And, and, and instead of perhaps watching Netflix or anything else, you know, uh-huh. go for a walk in nature, uh, start some meditative practice, uh, watch uh, for your insights, do, do journaling. Journaling is a fantastic thing to get in touch with yourself, but do journaling without any censorship, you know, don't worry how you spell or, you know, or whether it is, and don't show it to anyone. We have to get in touch with our real selves, with our souls, because I think this is what God's consciousness is also standing for. In Gnostic Gospels, it's called, it's called the noose, and noose means basically it is like a hook between the physical, uh, physical embodiment and higher consciousness or higher dimensions. So we have to find this inner noose, you know, and the inner noose, I believe, is our own spiritual practice, daily practice. Well, and um, you talked about the, 
the goddess lineages on the planet, all of these, you know, wise and advanced women that came so long ago, um, their bloodlines are still um, proliferating. And do you do you feel that um, that there is kind of an awakening of that of those bloodlines on the planet? As you know, like when you listen to Anastasia's news, you know, yeah. in Indonesia and Somalia, where women have like the le- least equality of anywhere in the world, even there, you know, it's like the first um, the first emergence of a of a flower in spring. You just see the little green tip coming up above the earth. You know that there's been you know a lot of um, uh, what's like alchemy transmutation that's happening under the ground and now we're starting to see the you know the above ground results of that so do you feel like this um all of these goddesses that you've written about left their bloodlines on the planet to continue that frequency absolutely so this is really well put because i also believe that they are resurfacing so basically, they are coming out, not only resurfacing in collectively in a sense that, yes, women are starting to awake, you know, wake up, wake up, right, to, to their own power. And also for both women and men to this feminine principle, because we both have the feminine and masculine in, our, in ourselves, but especially resurfacing in our own consciousness. So that's why I say we have to, the first rule of spiritual practice for me is take responsibility. So basically what is within you that is goddess consciousness and it requires lots of self-reflection and introversion also, right? So bring up this goddess consciousness within you and then more and more women and God, uh, you know, who carry this lineage and I think there is more than we know of uh, goddess lineage and goddess consciousness lineage within them will wake up and make change in the world. And do you think that, um, so if the, 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 the theory here, if this goddess lineage, that the DNA, the physical mm-hmm. DNA from ancient times is still circulating and, and replicating on the planet, each individual person depending on which line they um, are coming from can they then reach out to the original goddess you know there are i mean there are a lot of women that that are of the um, jesus and mary magdalene bloodline Mm -hmm. and there are women that are of other goddess bloodlines do you think because of that um the you can reach out to your, it's like calling your grandmother to help. Absolutely. You know. I love it. <laughs> I love it. It's like calling your grandmother, you know, help me. You know, and it, it doesn't have to be even gentle. You can say, help me. Once, you know, I was in a, many years ago, and hopefully it's, uh, you know, long, long time ago, and it's all gone. I was in a very bad relationship. And I was praying, you know, to, to, to kind of gentle energies and, you know, meditating on them. And then I decided, no, I need like a kick-ass energy here. You know, I really have to protect myself, if you don't mind me saying this. So I started to appeal, for example, to, to Goddess Kali, you know, which is very, it's a Hindu goddess, but she, or Goddess Durga, you know, who are the fully empowered goddesses. So, for example, uh, 
goddess Durga is a little bit of a warrior goddess and she and she's portrayed usually uh, riding a lion or a tiger and that it means that she's in full control of all of her inner demons and of her life circumstances and just meditating upon this image I just immediately draw uh, I draw strength from this you know like I felt empowered I could end a very mm-hmm. abusive relationship and j- just meditating on this you know you can ask for help you can even demand help you know help me you know, I need your strength now, you know. So uh, yeah. can I just mention a little bit more something about Goddess Kali here, since we are talking sure. about that? So Goddess Kali is a, a little bit controversial because she's both um, a tantric goddess, which talks about, you know, sexual awakening also and, 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 and as, a, as a spiritual awakening at the same time. And she's portrayed, you know, in very scary way, you know, the skull surrounds and quite interestingly, Mary Magdalene is also portrayed with the skull because the skull represents, again, the passage between death and life and between different dimensions, right? So I think it is, uh, it's quite interesting. So Goddess Kali also is the, so she, she's supposed to be this really serious goddess, but on a, psychological level, on a consciousness level, she's goddess of sudden transformation. So if you want your life to have a radical change and you are ready for this radical change, she basically represents this energy of radical change, you know, of radical transformation, but you have to be ready for this before you call upon this energy because the change will happen and it will be rapid change and there will be consequences, right? Like you have to change your life, right, life right. around very quickly. So, be you careful know, you what you careful. ask for. That's right. Be careful which grandmother you call upon, you know. But it's really interesting okay. because there, not many people know that she's so scary and it's a rapid transformation, but one of her gestures of her fingers, it's called the mudras in Hinduism, it's, she says also, do not be afraid. So one is, I destroy everything that, one just says, I destroy everything that you don't need anymore because you ask for it, right? So mm-hmm. <laughs> ask only for it when you kind of get, really right. can let go of it. And the other one says, do not be afraid, which I think is so beautiful. That is. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. It, it, it will pass and it's just a moment of transformation. Stay focused. And so, so yes, these are the energies that we can call upon. And first time, you know, for, for example, when I was calling upon the energy of um, uh, Isis, you know, I actually could feel her awakening and I thought like, wow, you know, because I could feel she basically asking me, are you sure you want to call upon me, right? Because she says, I, I am very powerful. <laughs> you know, sure. I will do what you want, but, you know, are you sure you're ready for this? <laughs> so right. they have personality. These energies have personalities. Some of them are very gentle. Absolutely. And some of them, you know, like you want a rapid change, I'll give it to you. Are you ready? Right, right. Um, well, talking about goddesses, uh, I have to bring up Athena. Mm-hmm. So, um, how does how does Athena fit into your um, into your work? Hmm. Athena is very interesting for me because, you know, I was always a very nerdy girl, right? I love books and so on. So when I got interested in ancient goddesses, I studied not only Aphrodite, the goddess of love, you know, and sexuality and beauty, but also Athena because she's the goddess of wisdom. 
But quite quickly, I must say, and she's goddess of knowledge and war also, but quite quickly, I kind of uh, get over her simply because, you know, it's good because she's the intellectual and she's very powerful because in my analysis of Athena, I noticed that she completely lost her feminine side. So although she is a goddess in, you know, Athena, woman in gender, she actually is a representation of a masculine form of intelligence, which is uh, intelligence which is very rational, uh, strategic, and, and technological. So that's my interpretation of Athena. So at the beginning, I was very grateful for her because there was, here there was a goddess that was educated and there was wise. But I think on, at our level of evolution, I think there are other goddesses that represent uh, you know, wisdom better than Athena. But, but, but I mean, it's my opinion, and I'm open to discussion. Uh, another thing I wanted to bring up um, when Lavender mentioned about our going to southern France, and we, we you know, we went to sites where Mary Magdalene was, and mm-hmm. one of them was a cave. Yes. And I mean, it was a hollow cave, and they had pews and an altar, and you know, they you know, try to make it into like a church. But they said yeah. that that's where, um, where because they had to hide mm-hmm. from from the um, I, I, from the people that... Uh, from the Romans. You know. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, but yeah, we were actually in that cave and, uh, and then the grotto that Lavendar mentioned. Mm. But one of the things that... Um, that was brought up was that the skull represented John the Baptist because she was engaged to Jesus was forced for a political reason or family. Her father made her marry John the Baptist because he was, you know, uh, a very powerful person. And then Mm -hmm. he was beheaded. So they said that, that that skull represents her connection to John the Baptist as well as um, distinguishing her in the um, in the statues and the and the sculptures, distinguishing her from the Virgin Mary, and and that's yeah. where you know the the Black Madonna and the and mm. the the blue um, the blue cloak, all of that. Um, so I thought that was I thought that was really interesting. Yes, but uh, can I disagree with you? <laughs> with this theory, maybe not with you, because that's true. She was portrayed as a skull for because for different reasons. But the skull traditionally in all mythologies represents the passing between death and life, and uh, and also maybe even different dimensions. And it is not only Christian. So I don't think that personally that it represents John the Baptist at all, because other goddesses is in other in other mythologies, including Goddess Kali, are also portrayed with a with a uh, with a skull. They're also portrayed in a you know in a red cloak or in a red dress. They have exactly the same symbolism, and it's supposed to represent you know alchemy. It's supposed to represent the passing between death and life. So I think that it is. Uh, uh, not likely that actually represent John the Baptist, but that's my opinion and based on my research. Yeah, so well, I don't that's want to... I mean. That's yeah. what the you know what the the people leading the tour were pointing out. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's still um, amazing all of the 
the um, hidden information in plain sight through art. I know. Oh. Isn't it wonderful? But yeah, exactly I mean, the simple reason, yeah. Yes, yeah, it is, it's really, uh, you know, some of the, the, the Renaissance and, and even earlier works and sculptures, um, you look at it and you see one thing, but if you know how to see, you see the, the clues and the answers were hidden in art so that people could um, unravel the mystery at some point, which I think that you, you're really doing and pursuing and, and doing a great job of it. So I do hope that um, I encourage people to take a look on Amazon for your book, um, The Other Goddess, Mary Magdalene and the Goddesses of Eros and Secret Knowledge. And also um, go to your website, uh, Joanna uh, Kuyava. Yeah. <laughs> K U J A W A dot com. And it has just been a pleasure to have you with us and, and I appreciate your calling uh, fr- from Australia. Um I know it's early in the morning there for you, but um thank you so much for joining us tonight. Thank you so much. I am delighted to you. I was delighted to be here, and I, I love sharing you know, my research, so I really, really appreciate it, uh, being on your show, and I'm also delighted to discover your show. You know, from now on, I would definitely, you know, subscribe to it uh, six weeks from now, because unfortunately at this time I conduct lectures normally, but six, from, uh, six weeks from now I will be a regular uh, Okay. Well, that's great. You know, we have we have uh, almost 500 shows in our archives, and uh, and for everybody that's listening, the first two years is when Lavendar released a lot of her light information. So, um, if you now that you've discovered us, take a look at at some of the shows that we did in the first two years, which would be 2010 and 2011. I absolutely just, will do that. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Okay. Well, Joanna, thank you so much for being with us. And uh, for our listeners, we'll be back on May 17th after our um, May Starseed quest to Arkansas. So once again, thank you, Joanna Kuyaba. Thank you. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Kuyaba. Got it right. Okay, Kuyaba. Okay. <laughs> Thanks so much, everyone, and good night. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Starseed Radio Academy. Visit our website at www.starseedhotline.com.